0: We have a great big stack. Excellent. So, um, uh-oh. All right. No, we. I'll get through them in a few days. So, um, actually, I'm going to see if I can find the batch I brought in. Okay, yeah. I brought in a bunch um, because we didn't. We don't always get to them all. So, um, uh, I'll keep those in reserve if I hate these. So, so now, um. Let me poke around in here. Here, can you? Yeah. All right. And the winner is... Okay. The first... Oh, he said this was going to be in here. We've we've been talking about this. So um, do you have a scripture text? So let me read you the question. Jim, did you ever find it? Yes, it's First John uh, five. Okay. <laughs> All right. They they threatened this at the men's at the men's Bible study the other morning. That so it's first First John what First First John five. Okay. Let me. Uh, so the question is, what is the sin that leads to death? Okay. What is the sin that leads to death? And the text is First John five. He says, um, starting in uh thirteen. He says, I write these things to you. So um, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 241 in the back section. So, all right. So 241, First uh, John 5, verse 13 um, and following. So he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the boldness we have in him that... Am I in the right place? Yes. No, I'm. What is too long? I'll skip down. Where am I looking for? Tell me the verse again. Well, seventeen and eight. Okay, yeah. So, all right. It, but there's kind of a, a lead up to it. Okay, all right. So, all right. I'm gonna. Um, so, why don't I start at eight on page two forty four? So, um, it's a long passage. Now, I'm gonna start. Um, I'm gonna start on seventeen. So he says, "But you, beloved." must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers indulging their own ungodly lusts. It is these worldly people devoid of the Spirit who are causing divisions. But you, beloved, build yourself up on the most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are wavering, So I'm still looking for the. I'm in Jude. I skipped too many pages. Okay, sorry. All right, all right. Important safety tip: give me a verse number in writing because I'm clumsy. Okay, so I want 17. First John, give me a page number, John. You've got you've got it in front of you, Jim. So where am I at? So the very end, right here, right here. Okay. Top of the page. Top of the page. All right, okay. Sorry, I was reading from Jude there, so if you're trying to follow along and figure it out. All right, so. All right, I'm going to start all over from scratch. And I wish I could say I was stalling while I thought of an answer. So let's take it from the top. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the boldness we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. If you see your brother committing what is not a mortal sin, you will ask and God will give life to such a one, to those whose sin is not mortal. There is sin that is mortal. I do not say that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not mortal. We know that those who are born of God do not sin, but the one who is born of God protects them. And the evil one does not touch them. We know that we are God's children and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And we know the son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. All right. So what on earth is he talking about? Now that I found the passage, what is he talking about? He's saying, he's saying that, um, He says, we have boldness that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So that's a piece of scripture. You know, Mark Twain said it's not the parts of the Bible that he doesn't understand that give him trouble, it's the parts that do. Well, turn that around. There are parts of the Bible that are pretty straightforward to understand, and he says that he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So hang on to that as we get through the rest of this passage. He says, and if we know he hears us in whatever we ask we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. So he says, if we know God hears us, we know that it is as good as done. We have obtained. If he hears us, that's it. God, God is faithful to provide what we need. All right? If you see your brother or sister committing what is not a mortal sin, you will ask and God will give life to such a one, to those whose sin is not mortal. So he's saying, if you see your brother doing something that is not a mortal sin, then you should ask. Okay? And God will give life to such a one. I mean, and then he says, but hold on, there is sin that is mortal. Mortal meaning fatal, uh, uh, mortal that, uh, uh, causes death, sin that causes death. He says, I do not say that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not mortal. Okay? So he's saying, not every sin falls in that category. So there is some, some type of sin that leads to death, a sin that is mortal. And then there is a sin that is not. And he says, pray about the one that's not. And he says, I'm not telling you you have to pray about the other one. So what is that sin? Okay, well, in our Bible study, we talked about the context of the letter. And my best answer, um, not having, still not having done the research that I said someday maybe I would, um, is the context of this letter is... John is talking about a group a church split there 's been a church split, and he 's saying a bunch of people left and they 're saying we're not we 're not sticking to what the church should believe and he 's saying that um, so so they talk about those who went out from us um, he says uh, um, where does it talk about that he says he says um, that the people who went out from us um, our uh antichrist he says in in chapter two on page two thirty nine he says you 've heard that Antichrist is coming, and so many antichrists have come He says they went out from us, they were part of our fellowship they were they were um worshiping with us, and then they went out from us they left okay and now they 're meeting at that strip mall okay or <laughs> wherever they're meeting. They, they have broken fellowship with these believers. And he's saying that um, by going out, they made it plain that none of them belong to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have um, knowledge. And he says, beneath that, he says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So he's saying... They, I mean, he's the implication here is he's saying, you know what their problem is. Their problem is they're denying that um, uh, Jesus is the Christ. They're saying that Jesus was whatever they were saying. We, we're only hearing half the conversation, but he's saying they are anti-Christ. They don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. So whatever it was that they were saying, he's saying they weren't saying or they were denying that Jesus was the Christ. And then he says, um, "Let you heard what from the beginning abide in you, if what you heard." So I'm now at the bottom of page two thirty nine. Um, then you will abide in the Father, and the uh, in the Son and the Father. And this is what he has promised us eternal life. Top of page two forty. So he's saying that the way we have eternal life is by abiding in Jesus. So in the context of this letter, I would say that the sin that leads to death is to deny that Jesus is the Christ. It is the thing that makes you anti-Christ. You are opposed to Christ. And as a result, that there is this sin that um, leads to death. And he's saying, anything short of that, you should pray for. If you see your your brother who's stumbling in some way, he's got an addiction, he's done something wrong, that you should pray for them and God will restore them. But he's saying, If ultimately they deny that Jesus is Christ, then they've cut themselves off from any source of aid. That that's, that's the only place that they can get help, and they're saying that that's the place that they refuse to have help. So he's saying that there's no solving that problem. So the sin that leads to death is there are people who are part of our fellowship, he's saying, they, or they were part of our fellowship, they had a theological dispute over who who Jesus was and what Jesus can do, and they have gone out from among us. And he's saying, and that unfortunately cuts them off from any source of help. So that's my best guess of what is the sin that leads to death. All right. And the next one here. Grab me another one. A better one. Oh, it's a long question. Okay. All right. So I propose the following passage of Scripture or topic for a brief message from Pastor Luke. How should a Christian go about inviting a gay or any LGBT friend to church when said friend is afraid of being judged? Assuming said church doesn't have any official stance pro or against LGBT things. One of Iris's friends. Well that's a great question for Iris's friends. So, I asked Iris if her friends had any uh any questions. So, um so how the 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 start of the question is, how should a Christian go about inviting a gay friend to church when said friend is afraid of being judged? Okay. Um my best answer to this is from the Apostle Paul. So, let's turn to uh 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul talks a lot about sexual immorality defiling the church. So, <clears throat> the first thing I would note, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Paul says, um, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind not found among pagans. So, um, I think a lot of what we think of today as, as sexual immorality would fall in that first category. Um, sexual immorality that is found among pagans. So he's saying, um, and he goes on, he talks about the specific sin, a man is living with his father's wife. Um, so probably not his mother, but his second wife or something like that. And he says, you should have removed him. Um, so, Paul is saying that, that the church cannot have fellowship with people who are um, openly uh, defiant in living an immoral lifestyle. So, That's part one, but I want to encourage you to read down to to verse 9. It says in verse 9 on page 169, I'm sorry, page 169, also in the New Testament. He says, um, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedier robbers or idolaters since you would need then need to go out of the world. So Paul is saying, I said something in my previous letter, which we don't have, and I need to clarify what I meant. I messed up in my previous letter, and I need to correct that. Um, so maybe that's why we don't have that first letter. So Paul is saying, here's what I meant to say. He's saying that, no, you should not associate with sexually immoral persons. But then he says, not meaning the immoral of this world. And then he lists them, the robbers, idolaters, and so forth. Um, And then in verse 11, he clears up what does he mean. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, who is sexually immoral or greedy, or is an idolater or a reviler, drunkard or robber. He says, do not even eat with such a one. And then this is the key verse, verse 12. What have I to do with judging those outside? So Paul is saying that if someone is not a Christian, we have no expectations of them in the area of morality. And that actually simplifies things because then we have a very clear obligation that Jesus has laid on all Christians, which is to love them unconditionally. We're not to judge people outside the church, only people who bear the name of brother and sister. Essentially, he's saying, how will they ever become a brother or sister if they aren't loved first? Right? If they If they stay outside the church, if they say, those people don't want me there, then... How will they ever become a Christian? So he's saying solve that problem by loving them into a relationship with Christ and then letting Christ deal with whatever their problem is, whether it's sexual immorality or being a reviler or a drunkard or a robber, right? And he's, this is not a complete list, it's an illustration. He's saying that, that everyone has to deal with who they are before Christ, but if they are not professing members of the church, then the the there is no room for judgment. There is only room for love. Mm-hmm. He's saying, what do I have to do with judging those outside the church? This is a place, the church gets things exactly backwards. We excommunicate people um, uh, very rarely, and as a result, we think of excommunication as a bad thing. What excommunication is actually saying is, I am finding it difficult to love you the way I know God wants me to love you because I I see your hypocrisy or your defiance of the church's discipline. And because of that, I'm incapable of loving you. And so in my weakness, I have to move you out to a different category of person. I have to move you outside the church and say you're not a believer because then my head gets clear and I can start loving you unconditionally again. And unfortunately, we tend to think of, and this is something we inherited from, you know, the past thousand years of Christianity, that excommunication is some kind of a punishment. It's actually not. It's actually a way to help get people into a place where you can begin working on healing again. So, my answer, Iris, to your friend who is uh, who is wondering if the church, um, how did I, how does it say, uh, afraid of being judged, is that there's no room in Christianity for judging. Paul specifically says. Um, he says, "What have I to do with judging those outside? You're not as good a Christian as Paul. Okay, you're really not. Um, Two thousand years from now, no one will even know your name. Okay, and Paul says he's not in a position to judge someone. So, um, so uh, no one in the church should be judging anyone um, who is outside the church. Does, so, anyway, I don't know who they are, so I can't ask if that." Clarifies things. All right. Here's the next one. Okay. The next one. All right. Uh, all right. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Well, this follows nicely on the previous one. He says there are lots of destroy my enemies psalms, but how are you allowed to ask for destruction when you're supposed to love your enemies? Iris herself this time. LOL. <laughs> Okay. All right. There are there's there are some horrifying psalms. Um, you know, and I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. Uh what is it? Uh 68, 68, 69. So um, God will shatter the heads of his enemies, right? Um, uh I will bring them back from the depths of the sea so you may bathe your feet in blood. Okay. There's some horrifying things that the psalmist cites um, uh, and um, you know they're not happy there's not happy things there's there's things in there so the first thing I would say is first about the Psalms let's first of all deal with the Psalms the first thing is don't try to sugarcoat it for God okay that person you work with that person who shoved you in the locker at school um, right God knows what you're thinking about them okay <laughs> So you might as well be honest, right? the The word actually, this is a, this is a great word. Um, the the Greek word to confess, is literally it's Um I'm botch, botching the Greek, but but what it means is is to speak the same, right? And what it means is God can tell me what my sin is, and if I will only confess it, then we can have the same point of view, right? But it's when I'm in denial, when I'm saying, you know, mistakes were made, um, you know, when I'm saying, you know, I'm only human, when I'm saying other things than owning it, then I haven't confessed it. That confession is not giving God new information. Confession is admitting what God already knows. So in general, I would say that should characterize our prayer life. God is not going to be surprised or uh, given new information by anything you say to him. So the first thing is the psalmist is saying, that no good so-and-so, you know, bathe in blood, you know, on the rest of all this stuff, right? So he's he's not a happy person, and he has such confidence in God that he is willing to be honest with God, okay? That's that's actually a good lesson. So um, that's the first part, be honest in your prayers. And now the second part is, how are you allowed to ask for destruction when you're supposed to love your enemies, well, I would say, I put a little sticky note in my Bible. This is then, and this is now. Um, so this is called the Old Covenant, the covenant of law, and this is called the New Covenant, the covenant of grace. And Jesus says that if you want to be like God, he says in, in Matthew 5, he says, uh, page 5 in the New Testament section, um, Starting in verse 43, he says, You have heard it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he's quoting from the Old Covenant, right? He's saying, you've heard it was said. It wasn't said, it was written in the authoritative word of God. You have heard it was said, love your, in- love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So, the psalmist says to God, honestly, God, if you're looking for advice from me, God, I propose a bloodbath. Okay? So he's saying, this is, this is where I'm at, okay? And, you know, we can laugh because honestly, our enemies aren't that bad, okay? But if, you know, Al-Qaeda had just swept through your town and taken away uh, all the women and killed all the men. Um, you might feel differently about a bloodbath. So um, you know maybe you should add to your prayers, uh, 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 thanksgiving that that your problems are so minor in comparison. So I don't know I don't know what your problems are, but if they aren't big, then maybe that's something you can add to your prayer. But he says, okay, so I've got enemies, um, and Jesus says, pray for them. So why why should we do that? Jesus says, so you may be children of your Father in heaven. He's saying, the goal, the goal here is not to be a good person. The goal is not to be an obedient person. The goal is to be God-like. He's saying, later on he he finishes um, this paragraph, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's saying, uh, do what you can't do, be perfect, because It is by praying for those who persecute you. It is by loving your enemy that you are most like God. So, two things there. First of all, that's what God's like. Let's suppose that during our prayer of reconciliation earlier in the service, you said, yeah, but God can't forgive the thing I've done because it was so terrible, right? Um, Jesus is saying that the way you are most like God is if you love the people who are your enemies. So, if you're still carrying a burden of guilt and shame about something in your life, and you're saying, God can never forgive me for that, I wouldn't forgive me if I was God. Jesus is saying, yeah, and that's why you need to change. Because if you were like God, you would forgive you for that. Because that's what God is like. So he's saying, maybe you need to expand your view of God to be a God who loves people who he shouldn't, by our standards. Who loves people who don't deserve it. And so maybe you need to change your picture of God. But then he says, finally, to answer Iris's question, he says, how are you allowed to ask for destruction when you're supposed to love your enemies? Um, he says, he says, be perfect. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And you're saying, I can't do that. Well, again, this is not news to Jesus. Jesus asks us to do things that don't come naturally. Jesus asks us to be different people than we are. And he's saying, he's saying, I know it seems crazy, but I can work in you and I can make you a different person. I can make you perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And, because I'm Jesus, I can read your mind and I can predict your your objection to that. So here's the deal: I'll go first and I'll show you the way. And what is that? By putting to death the part of you that is that is uh, broken, the part of you that that is sinful. And he says, I will I will die even though I don't need to to show you that you can put to death everything in you that is not godly. And when you're done. You will be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect so um, don't lie to god don't don't say in your prayers that you're just you're just wishing the best for them because God knows what 's on your mind God knows what's in your heart but yes do say God right now i 'm not i 'm not feeling i 'm not loving them change me too I mean by all means please do fix them and maybe blood baths i 'm still kind of I'm not opposed necessarily to the bloodbath. Okay. So I would like you to change them. But what Jesus is telling me, Lord, is you really also need to change me because I cannot love them as long as they have been like this. If they are my enemy, I cannot love them. And so I need to change because I want to be like my Father in heaven. Okay, I think we got time for one more. So, all right. This one is not from Iris. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. All right. Boy. All right. Why did God give us free will, even though we are believers and have the Holy Spirit? Why isn't the Holy Spirit a better guide to help us avoid the things that are bad? Okay. So, um... All right. So uh, let me see if I can restate the question be, uh, because um, this is from Jill. I'm going to keep saying that. Um, <laughs> so, so why did God give us free will? And I think what this means is why does God let us go our own way, even when we have become Christians? Right. It's one thing to say when I'm a when I'm a pagan, I'm a heathen, I'm an atheist. Of course, I'm going to go my own way. Right. But you know, I got saved. I was washed in the blood of the Lamb. I gave my my life to Jesus. You know, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Why doesn't God take the... What is the country and western song, right? Jesus take the wheel. Why doesn't he take the wheel, right? Why doesn't he drive my life? Because the truth of the matter is, I sometimes drive into the ditch, even when I'm saved. Um, He says, why isn't the Holy Spirit a better guide to help us avoid those things that are bad? All right. Well, um, I think the Holy Spirit is a better guide. Um, But the question is, why does God not require us to follow the Holy Spirit? Why does God not remove our agency? Why doesn't God force us to obey him? Once you know, once we become a Christian, right? Once we've surrendered to God, how come God doesn't force us to obey Him? And I think the the reason for that is because, um, all right, where's an answer? Um, because this is what. All right, I I perpetually go back to Genesis one um, because it's a familiar story and people know it. But if you don't know it, um, it's the story uh, of um, of God. Genesis 1 and 2, excuse me, um, and I'll pick two because it's shorter. Um, it says, uh, if I can find it, um, so page 2 in the Old Testament section, this is God's plan. God made the world good, okay, and it still is on page 2. <laughs> It gets more complicated after that. Um, So he says, what is God's plan? He says, the Lord God formed man. So I'm on verse 7 of chapter 2. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And he put all these uh, plants in there, and a river grows. And verse 15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till and keep it. He says, God's got a purpose for you. God wants you to do something, right? That This is not just Adam. This is not just the first man. This is all of us. If God's plan had been carried out to the letter, then Adam and Eve would have been fruitful and multiplied. There'd be lots of children of Adam, children of Eve, and they would be tilling and keeping the garden god has an intention that is not something he wants to do all by himself uh, what exactly is that intention i don't know we're so messed up because of the because of our brokenness because of the 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 fallen world around us that it's hard for us to see necessarily what that intention was but god is in the position of saying okay i can i can put things back the way they were I can recreate the world to, to carry out my plan, or I can recreate the world to almost carry out my plan. Because in chapter two, it doesn't say God put the, the man and the, and and the woman in the garden to till and keep it by programming them like they were a robot. God never intended to program anybody like a robot. God wants, He put our individuality into us and made us different people. He made us unique individuals because whatever his purpose is, somehow that plays into this purpose he's got for um, being image bearers in the created order. And so if he were to, if he were to start driving us around like we were a programmable toy or something, you know, a wind up toy, then, then, that would no longer be a fully restored creation. God's intention is to really make us into who, our, who His intention was for us to always be. So, um, yes, the Holy Spirit is a better guide, um, but God will not force it on us. So, what do you do when, you know, to pick an example, you're not loving your enemies. Okay, the Holy Spirit could somehow, I suppose, force you to be a loving person, even towards your enemies. But instead, he's saying, I'll help you with this, if you want it. You're saved, you're going to heaven either way, but do you want help becoming more like God, or not? So he's saying, the Holy Spirit is there, the Holy Spirit will guide us and teach us all things, but no, I'm not going to make you do it. So, all right. All right. So um I've got a whole list in here and my my favorite uh, my favorite in this list I, I went through them and I don't have a scripture in mind but I just was trying to make sure I wasn't repeating anything. My favorite in here is what about UFOs? So <laughs> So maybe sometime we'll we'll get to that one. So all right, but I've got a whole now now stack of ones we haven't done. So um, I don't know when the next fifth uh, five fifth Sunday is but we'll do it again then. So um, uh I think that Then we're done. So let's um, let's me find my thing, my this. All right. Um, So now we're going to have prayers of the people, and I need the cards. What did I do with them? I've never seen them. I'm sure, too. Here they are.